I think that there's always a pendulum swing from when we're in this sort of mode of like really trusting our gut and just like going with what feels right and throwing ourselves fully into this big vision, which may or may not (laughs) be sustainable. (laughs) And then the other side of cultivating those systems and really being thoughtful. Visionary or integrator? Startup or maintenance CEO? In the world of business, there is no shortage of ways to categorize your leadership style and the way you operate. But maybe in the real world, it's not quite so distinct. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. I love quizzes and personality tests and different ways of categorizing my personality, my skills, how I think about things. Some have been really helpful in helping me think about how and why I approach things. Knowing that I'm an Enneagram 3 helped me understand how I tend to tie my worth to my achievements and why I do that. Understanding my Clifton strengths helped me organize my days and my weeks so that I have plenty of time for reflection and integration. Knowing that I'm a human design projector helps me understand why my energy tanks when I'm around too many people for too long. Sometimes these assessments are genuinely helpful and help us understand how and why we do the things we do and think the way we think, which can help us improve our weaknesses and lean into our strengths. But sometimes they can also create artificial boxes around us and create limitations that can keep us from growing as leaders and as individuals. One of these dichotomies that I've repeatedly gotten stuck on personally is the idea that you are either a startup or a maintenance CEO. You're either the energetic new kid here to whip everyone into a frenzy of work who changes things at the drop of a hat, or you're the quote unquote adult they bring in once things are rolling so you can bring order to the chaos. So think Sheryl Sandberg when she came into Facebook to keep Mark Zuckerberg under control. They literally called her the adult in the room. As we've been talking about maintenance mode, it seemed like a logical choice to examine whether or not all business owners can even be in maintenance mode. What if you are either a startup CEO or a maintenance one? Does that mean your business will never be able to operate like clockwork? My guest today is Sarah Avenir. She's an author and the CEO of And Yet, a marketing and messaging agency. And she's been on both sides of this debate. She's been a startup CEO, a freelancer, an employee, and then she got tapped to become the CEO of And Yet, and she had to figure out how to make a team of designers and developers and strategists come together under what she calls systems of practice. So in the startup world, we kind of get presented with this idea that you are either a startup CEO or a maintenance CEO, that there is one type of person that's suited to be at the helm of a startup, but kind of once that startup gets traction, it's time to bring in the adult to run things. So what is your take on that? Do you identify more with one or the other? Is it really a dichotomy? What do you think? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm working on a chapter about systems and in a book that I'm writing. And I, for me, I think I was born more the startup 
type. I am naturally just go in the direction of my enthusiasm and I pour myself wholeheartedly into what I'm doing and I love the grand vision and all of that. But it hasn't been a super healthy approach for me in in doing that. And I've just realized as I've gotten older, as I've, you know, run different businesses and things like that, how important healthy systems really are. And so when I took on the CEO role at And Yet um, coming up on two years ago now, I realized that I, I wanted to start building what I what I'm thinking of as like systems of practice for myself and for our team that are more healthy, even if they aren't my inclination (laughs) to do things that way. I, I think just having hit my own capacity levels and realizing I can't continue to, to be that like, fire starter spark person anymore because I just can't make myself do it <laughs> that I you know I have to I have to learn other ways of being and other ways of leading which are ultimately healthier but maybe not my natural bent. Yes, I can completely relate to all of that. My my professional career has been based off of like coming in and fixing things and then I leave and you figure out, you know, you have to deal with running the system day to day. Like I'll help you design the system, but I'm not going to be here to run it because I get bored and I want to go fix somebody else's system. Right, right. And <laughs> like you really ended up realizing that it's, it, at least in my own business, it works really well with clients because they yep. have a system that they can go maintain and they don't you know, they worry about getting bored with it, but that's not my problem. Uh, But it doesn't really work very well in my own businesses. Yeah. Um, And like you, it's not that healthy. It's not that sustainable. You can only push for so long. So it's interesting that my experience really (laughs) mirrored exactly what you have described here. So you've actually been in both positions. So you've gone from this startup CEO to employee, back to CEO, business partner, Talk to me about that journey and what that looked like for you in all of those different positions through that path. I think I've always identified with this need for freedom in whatever context that I'm in. And I think that over time, whether, you know, I have mostly been self-employed my whole life. And actually working at the company that I'm with now was a big departure from that for me because I I had not worked for anyone else in 10 years. And so freedom has always been deeply important to me that I, I have autonomy and I'm able to create contexts that I do well within. And part of that, I think, has to do with just being a sensitive person. I I am really in tune with the way that the, the overall societal systems often don't totally work for me and help me to, to perform at my best. So I feel like that's a really <laughs> gentle way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to explain how broken all of our systems are. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm like a sitting very, on the That was floor a very gentle like... <laughs> way to say that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm like sitting on the floor in like the yoga. I think it's like the Sukhasana cross-legged pose. So maybe that's where my gentleness is coming from right now. <laughs> but... Yeah. So I, but ironically, sometimes the way that we 
get that freedom that we're wanting is by acting in a way that we ultimately don't want to have to act later on. You know what I mean? But pushing ourselves and striving and working to our capacity. And and I think that, so for me, I've just had to, as I've stepped into this, at first it was uh, a marketing role at And Yet. And I, that was um, an interesting experience because it only lasted for nine months because we had a, we lost one of our biggest clients. And so anybody who was working on like growth sort of projects that were not billable were, was laid off. And so I kind of had to like start all over again and to do so rather rapidly because my family was depending on me and my income. And so I went through another season of pushing really, really hard. And I rebuilt all the things that I had set aside in order to work for this company. And yeah, and then I came on later as a business partner and decided to, to become invested and so from from that perspective, I kind of had to take a little time to sort of decompress. I think sometimes when you're working in that like high stress startup kind of mode, it, it takes a toll on you that takes some time to recover from. Like, I don't think that I, I think it, it, it took me years to actually believe that I could perform at a high level again. But I slowly started rebuilding that capacity in myself. And when I I was asked to take on the CEO role, I I just I I was worried because I didn't yet trust that I had rebuilt that capacity for myself. And I also saw echoes of that same sort of it's it's almost being like a victim of your own optimism. And energy level. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel I feel every bit of that. <laughs> yeah. I saw that in and yet as a company. And and so I really for the past two years have committed myself to building systems for myself and for us so that we we could be healthier. We could be in a healthier place. So without going into too too much detail, because I, I you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, to me, it's been 15 years now. I always align it with my oldest son's birthday. He's going to be 16 in May. And I'm like, yep, that's when I started because <laughs> I I wanted to be able to have more flexibility to take care of my first child. But yeah, I it has basically been a path to, to freedom, to kind of being that victim of my own, you know, optimism and energy and drive to developing a different kind of approach to freedom, which actually requires some, as uh, Jocelyn Glide calls it, gentle discipline. <laughs> and learning how to like work with our own internal resources and with the, the people and their natural uh, proclivities to be able to design systems built for people rather than just focused on outcomes. Yeah, I love this idea that you've kind of been circling around this, this idea that you can still find freedom through systems, through structure, through routine. Yep. And I would love to explore and see what that's been like for you. Is that have, have you found freedom from your systems? I've always been a big fan of 
different systems and and ways that people make decisions around their lives, whether it's, you know, a tool that I've been excited about, or, you know, like David Allen's getting things done system or, or whatever it has been. But when I started working on systems for to build my own capacity and the capacity of our team, I realized that those systems kind of tend to become the focus. And it's just super fun to like switch everything from like one tool to another. (laughs) And also to believe that you can't do your work until you get the system right, you know? Yes, productive procrastination is Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the way that I approach things now is very much like the system has to be secondary. It has to kind of be almost invisible to to the work that's coming out of that and and it needs to build really slowly over time if ever i feel an impulse to just be like okay i figured it out i'm <laughs> i now know exactly how the system is going to work for the rest of my life i know that that's a lie (laughs) that I am telling myself. (laughs) And I have, you know, myself slow down and think through, through how I, I want to approach it. And so, yeah, I think the systems that I've worked on since kind of really focusing on systems are totally different than the ones that I tried to sort of hack my productivity and my, you know, my ability to follow through. They're totally different than those systems, I guess, that I that I used to use. So you mentioned something earlier on in the conversation, you talked about systems of practice. And I would love to dig deeper into that and find out what that looks like. Yeah, well, I think about, you know, the word system can be applied at so many levels that it can become almost meaningless. And also there are inherent values in a system that may not work for human beings all that well. You think about a system is efficient. It helps us to do a lot with as little as possible. It allows for predictability so we can actually plan ahead and and then ultimately control, right? So that we we feel like we can control the randomness of the universe. I, and I think that those values are are necessary and good when we're talking about systems designed around our like material resources and the way that we manage those. But when we're talking about human beings, we need a different value system. And so any any system that is to be used by humans and for humans is about practice. It is about what we do, not with our material resources, but with our our most valuable resources of time and energy and effort and attention. So a system of practice is an approach to making those decisions, but they're not meant to kind of subdue us into this societal standard for what it means to be productive or even healthy. It's like a a foundation for service and, and caring for the people or the person that it's designed for. And you can build a system of practice for yourself, for your team, for an 
a whole organization or even a community or and build systems within systems that affect and influence each other. So yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, a lot lately. I, like, I love that as a as a concept because I think traditional productivity systems and like you, I have gone down the rabbit hole on all of them. I love yeah. all of the technology. I love all the productivity hacks. But in reality, it's really designed to get you to do more work. Right. And at the detriment, potentially, of your health, your mental health, your family, your life. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea that systems of practice incorporates like being a person and what yes. works for you as a person in a healthy way. Right, right. And and doesn't try to suppress what it means to be human because those are the things that normal systems, I guess the the default systems in in our culture, they try to do, they try to eliminate or at least reduce human input so that they can reduce human error. (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) but a system of practice is different because it takes into consideration that most of our days, we are just practicing. I, I've gone through several phases in my life where I really wanted to become a runner. They were all short-lived. But <laughs> <laughs> the most recent one was maybe a year ago. And I remember listening to this running coach podcast thing. And I had never done that before. I never listen to uh, a coach of runners talk about how you learn to run. And one of the things he said was like, everybody can run. Like this is, it's totally false that not everybody can run. The problem is that most people are trying to run too fast than they currently are able to do. He said that your pace you should be able to keep it up no matter if you're a first time runner or you've been running for your whole life for the entirety of your run. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what? And <laughs> I, I, I started to try to find like what that pace is for me. And for me, that pace is slower than walking. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like a very weird sort of, you know, I'm moving as if I'm running, but it's, it's not, a, it's not a fast pace. But it gave me a lot of confidence because I realized like, oh, I can start here and, and I will gradually improve with practice. And I am, I am a runner today. I'm not having to wait for that. And then the other thing that he was talking about was that most days are maintenance days that people think about running as like, oh, if I'm a runner, I'm, I'm trying to make this certain time or I, I'm trying to get faster. I'm trying to get better. I'm always doing my best. He's like, actually, no, that's not true. If you're a runner, you run all the time. Most days are maintenance days or recovery days. It's rare that you're actually intentionally running faster than your pace in order to increase, you know, your your time, your distance, whatever it is. And, and so I think a system of practice takes this into account that most days that we're living our lives are maintenance days, that we can sprint, we can pick up the pace, but and, but the maintenance days and the recovery days allow us to do that better when it's time to do that. 
And so building our systems of practice based on what is that pace that I can maintain every day, no matter what's going on, I can keep running for the entire 10 minutes or hour or however long it is, that may be an extremely slow pace. But if we start there, then we can build on that incrementally over time. And then the whole process is one that's full of ease and natural growth and and, and getting slowly better over time, progressing rather than this kind of like striving. And I just I love that. I hadn't thought about it in a really long time, so I'm glad you asked that question. No, that is quite possibly the best analogy for maintenance mode I could possibly have ever come up with. Yeah. Like, thinking about applying that that analogy of learning how to run and that most days are maintenance days to thinking about our business that way, that most days are there to just do the work and show up and do the next thing and that so much of our work is the same stuff over and over again and i think that really Mm -hmm. encompasses why maintenance mode even if it's designed to allow you to take a break from the business or designed to just allow you to scale there's so many things you can do when you go into it with the mindset of this most days are maintenance days (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it does preserve your energy. You you talked about boredom before, and I definitely relate to that. Like sometimes I ask myself the question, am I wanting to change this because it's really useful or is it because I'm getting antsy? <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do take that approach to really starting with what's what's easy for you to do every day, then you have a lot more energy during the rest of your time to go wild, you know, and to sort of contain that, right? To contain it into mm-hmm. this area of like, okay, now I can just dream because I I I did my thing that I needed to do. So you can have both, but definitely for those of us who tend to like light up when change happens or mm-hmm. <laughs> when we have a new idea or whatever. I'm kind of separating those things can be really useful. Hey there, it's Susan. If you've been listening to this interview and it's making you think about some of these issues and ideas and you wish you could talk to some other real live business owners about it, I wanted to invite you to my free monthly roundtable, Dollars and Decisions. Once a month, I get together live with a group of amazing business owners just like you to geek out on money and operations and workflow and software, all that stuff that you hear me talk about here. The roundtable is kind of like a live interactive version of the podcast. So I would love to have you join me. To sign up for the next roundtable, head to scalespark.co slash dollars and decisions, no spaces, no hyphens, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. touching on the point of boredom and mindset, I think one of the biggest hurdles for people like you, people like me, lots of business owners where we get really excited about new stuff is the mindset shift that kind of needs to happen to take you from being a startup CEO to a maintenance style CEO for somebody who thinks in systems and systems of practice and who is comfortable with consistency And 
So I would love to know if there were any kind of learning moments that stuck out for you as you've moved through this, stuff you wish you'd known earlier, places where you really got stuck from a mindset perspective as you've kind of transitioned from I'm I can do whatever to I'm going to be consistent. Yeah. Well, I mean, this may be an entirely different track, but I'm thinking about the systems that we have put into place at and yet that we've really tried hard to become a company that values that kind of steady application of energy, right? And and so we started out just using the OKR framework to identify like what are our objectives and key results that we're going after for for the year and for each quarter and really getting clear on that. And I think the thing that is really interesting to me is that so many of our systems, like OKRs as a framework, right? They're designed around output and they're designed around like, we know that we will be successful when. But a lot of those key results, Josh Seedon actually wrote a book called Outcomes Over Output that's really interesting that helped me sort of connect these dots. But a lot of these outputs are our behaviors, their customer behaviors that we want to change. We want, you know, more people coming to this page. We want more people saying yes to what we have to offer. And because they're customer behaviors, they're they're influenceable, but they're not directly controllable. And so we spend a lot of energy around these things that are outside of our control, which is extremely stressful. It may be though that that there's a part of us, though, that knows that in order to reach our goals, we have to have them, right? <laughs> like we have to be looking sure. ahead, right? And so it's like, how do you how do you balance those things? And I think it's been really challenging for us to do that. Recently, though, we have kind of we based on Josh Seaton's kind of understanding of like there. Yes, there's the objective and there's the key result, but there's also the output, which is like the practice, right? And the practice is part of the hypothesis. It's basically like, if we do this, we think that this key result's likely to happen, or it's likely to change this other thing. And so instead of just tracking like, what are our outcomes? What are these customer behaviors that we're trying to change? We also pay attention to our what our hypothesis is, what the outputs are that we think will change that thing. And so like once we we have that hypothesis, we kind of like, you know, shove the other thing over to the side. Like we're not really paying attention to the uncontrollable, at least for that duration of time. So we work in quarters. So we're able to set aside a lot of the like ruminating sort of questions and ideas and things the things for a time, uh, because I think that those are the things that kind of interrupt your systems and make you go, oh, wait, let's do this other thing, or let's like take a totally different path, or I don't know if this is working. It's like if you have these set intervals where you are going to, you are going to work with 
your hypothesis for this particular experiment. And you're going to let that thing run its course. And then you have a time of reflection and allowing for questions and ideas to emerge. And then you, you know, repeat that all over again. I think that has been the hardest and also most fruitful experience for us is just trying to come up with a system of like communicating and discovering for ourselves what the right things to do are for where we want to go. Yeah, I love the idea of focusing on the pieces that you can control, the actions that you can take that you think might lead to a good outcome or for the goal that you're shooting for. But your focus is less on achieving that goal and more on doing the things that you know you need to do to get towards that goal. Back in episode 33, I talked to Jason Van Orden about the idea of setting operational goals, which are goals that are focused on the actions you need to take to achieve a particular goal that you set. So if your goal is to sell six spots in your mastermind, you set an operational goal to reach out to 30 people or to send 10 emails about it. Focusing on actions instead of the goals allows you to make sure you've done everything within your control to reach that goal. In Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, and also as Javi Brooks, who she teaches kind of this really interesting approach to understanding ourselves, but she talks about fractals and and fractals being, you know, like a fern in nature, every leaf is a representation of the the stem and every stem is a representation of the whole frond and the frond is a representation of the entire plant. And that if we work fractally, then working on one thing is actually working on all of it. And so I think that's another another piece to this is if we can, I mean, which is why I think working not only on like our personal systems of practice and also working on the larger systems of practice for our business is so important because when we work on our own at that fundamental level, it teaches us so much about what's going to work on a on a bigger scale. And I just love, I love that metaphor for thinking about how to align and interconnect the different things that we're trying to do so that they truly are impacting each other in like this really positive cycle. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Fractals, they're magic. (laughs) (laughs) So as a CEO now, would you still consider yourself to be... A startup CEO? Would you consider yourself to be a maintenance CEO? Are you somewhere in the middle? Are you, have you thrown the dichotomy out the window and (laughs) it's, it is what it is? How, how have you shifted as, as a founder, as a leader? And what do you still have to work on? Well, I mean, I think it's all about thinking in levels. It depends on what level you need to think in in that moment. I think you actually need to be able to zoom out and think on a big picture level, which might actually mean you have to make a big pivot and a hard decision that isn't built into your current systems. And then zooming into that closer level, that's where you see that, you know, at the small everyday scale is where that 
bigger picture change actually happens. So to me, I, I want to cultivate both of those in myself. I think that there's always a pendulum swing from, you know, when we're like in this sort of mode of like really trusting our gut and just like going with what feels right and throwing ourselves fully into this big vision, which may or may not (laughs) be sustainable. (laughs) And then the other side of like systems, cultivating those systems and and really being thoughtful, like I think that I've gone more over to the side of of those systems of practice, but there are still times when I need to be able to make those big decisions. And I think it's hard for me to understand sort of when, when an experiment isn't working, like one that maybe you've been conducting and iterating on for years or something, you know, when discerning, like when to stop implementing those systems and when to take a bigger picture look at things and maybe totally change direction. So yeah, I think that's where I would like to grow (laughs) more in myself. Yeah, I think that's a challenge that maybe everybody struggles with is when have you (laughs) given this enough to say it's not working. Yeah. I I think oftentimes we go the other direction and we give up too soon Mm -hmm. and we're not, we don't follow through enough. We're not consistent enough to really give something a legitimate shot. But the other side of that is when have you legitimately given it enough and it's time to do something else? Right. No, it's totally true. I think even when you, as humans, we are biased toward like wanting to continue something. And if we stop doing something, we see that as a failure, right? Like mm-hmm. it, we see that as, oh, that didn't work. That means my strategy didn't work. My thinking was wrong. I was wrong. That kind of thing. Author Annie Duke calls this resulting. The idea that focusing on the outcome of a decision changes your opinion about whether or not a decision was a good one. But in reality, the outcome of a decision might not say anything about the quality of that decision. Sometimes luck intervenes, and even a good decision, maybe one with only a 10% chance of a bad outcome, still ends up with a bad result, which sometimes causes us to learn the wrong lesson. It was a good decision, but the result taught you not to make decisions like that in the future. When you set operational goals like we talked about, you can minimize some of that question of, have I given this thing enough time or energy? Because you'll know that you did. Something that I've tried to develop more in myself and in our team is this idea that we naturally thrive when we have the right environment, when we have the right things coming in, when we have the right approach, the right systems that really is working with who we are. And so I like to think a lot about nurturance and how really good systems help to not to like curb our own like terrible tendencies, because I feel like that's a lot of times how we think about it. It's like, ah, well, I don't do this enough or I don't do that enough. And but I, I honestly think that if we can be well nurtured, then we naturally thrive. 
and we naturally thrive in ourselves and then that extends out into the the communities and teams that we're a part of. And so I I think about the idea of a system being just a really good way to tend to like the plot of land that we are given, which includes ourselves and what happens when we actually improve the soil rather than force ourselves to work in (laughs) rocky or like clay type soil situations, you know, and we actually pull those weeds instead of letting them kind of choke out the good things. So yeah, I guess, I guess really that just the way that we, we can work with ourselves rather than assuming that we will, like, go to seed if we're not adequately controlled. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I definitely... Uh, yes. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's a... I, I really like the way Clifton Strengths kind of thinks about qualities, which is that you have strengths, there are good parts to it, and there are parts that maybe you need to be aware of and consider how they might impact you negatively. Mm. And that oftentimes we really focus on holding ourselves back. So in this instance, we're talking about, you know, a startup CEO being not great and a maintenance CEO being the thing that we're trying to accomplish. But there's so many benefits to that startup mindset that you can move fast and you're really enthusiastic and it's very passionate and you get stuff done and that there is a time and a place for all of that and that one isn't necessarily bad or good, but that you can use the skills from both perspectives and nurture the skills you have from both perspectives while still not messing stuff up in your business. Yeah, no, I mean, it's totally that like pendulum swing thing, like rather than swinging from side to side, that like Buddhist principle of the middle way, which is like, yeah, it's not either this or that. We actually can take the good things out of both of these things and 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 practice those. My biggest takeaway from this conversation with Sarah is that it's okay that I have a tendency to lean towards the move fast and break things mantra of a startup. But that doesn't have to keep me from growing a sustainable business that can move into maintenance mode or move in and out of it. And there's times in every business where both sets of skills are valuable. As I have more and more conversations with folks exploring this idea of maintenance mode, I'm coming to realize that maybe it's not really a mode. It's not really a switch that you can turn on and off. And it's more of a mindset. It's something that you can bring to your business, whether your intention is to step away or to scale. But by cultivating a mindset of maintenance, or as Sarah called it, creating systems of practice around your work, you build in options and choice and create a culture of ease. Sarah's running analogy really stuck with me. This idea that most days are maintenance days, and that's how you become a runner. You can find Sarah at sarahavenir.com, where she's writing a book called People First Growth. In public, you can read it as she goes, or at And Yet, and links for both of those are in the show notes. What do you think? Are you a maintenance CEO, a startup CEO, or something in between? 
What challenges you when you're trying to cultivate a maintenance mindset? I'd love to talk to you about it. So I'm inviting you to my next Dollars and Decisions Roundtable. It's a finance and operations strategy session for business owners like you. And it is a great way to talk through some of the challenges you might be facing with scaling your business or trying to figure out how to develop more of a maintenance mindset. You can register at scalespark.co slash dollars and decisions, or just click the link in the show notes. See you there. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Runbeck.